Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to fun. While fun cloaks itself in a plethora of disguises, its favorite mantle still remains fun. Fun devours all it touches, its voracious appetite rarely fulfilled. Yet fun doesn't only destroy, it creates and molds as well. Molds as Let's well. examine closely then this dangerously evil creation, this new breed. But a word of caution, handle with care and don't drop your guard. This rapacious new breed prowls both alone and in packs, operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? Who are they? CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. Good evening and welcome to Stereoscopic Readout here on 101.9 FM CITR, UBC Campus Radio here in Vancouver and Stereoscopic Readout is The Psych Show every Thursday evening hosted by me, Darren. And I've got a bit of a special program for you tonight. Uh, We are going to be looking at the life and music of Sid Barrett, former frontman of Pink Floyd and very famous recluse, but we'll be basically expanding on that uh, over the course of the next hour and a half. That song you just heard was Golden Hair, which appears on The Madcap Laughs, Sid Barrett's first solo album, which was released in 1970, although that is, to the best of everybody's knowledge, the first song he ever wrote. It is a poem by Irish man of letters James Joyce, author of the author of the classic novel Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake. Um, 
Sid put it to music. Sid was born on the 6th of January, 1946, in Cambridge, England. Cambridge, obviously a university town north of London in uh, East Anglia. He was born Roger Keith Barrett, but during his teenage years was nicknamed Sid after a local Cambridge jazz drummer, although he would always spell his name S-Y-D to differentiate himself between, uh, or to, dif- to differentiate himself from uh, the other Sid Barrett. <clears throat> By all accounts, Sid, when he was a kid, was a very happy, very witty, funny, uh, charming charismatic guy it was very easy for him to make friends he was also highly intelligent and in this respect he took after his mother and his sister rosemary with whom he had a um, he was particularly close although he was came from a family of five children um in his childhood sid got into music very early like most musicians in britain um sid was captivated by the skiffle craze uh, started in 1956 by Lonnie Donegan and the classic single Rock Island Line. But obviously this led the uh, this opened the door to other things such as like obviously rock and roll music. But in Sid's case he wasn't so much into things like the, um Elvis for example like the Beatles were. Uh Sid tended to gravitate more towards R&B records and in particularly Bo Diddley. Towards the end of the 50s, he also got into British band The Shadows, who, if you know anything about the British music scene, they were giants of the British music scene in the uh, early 60s, playing sort of, they were an instrumental combo, very much like uh, what in North America would be termed a surf band. Uh, They did have, their best known song would be Apache, and were gigantic influences on most guitarists, such as Peter Green of Fleetwood Mac, Pete Townsend, and Eric Clapton. The first momentous um, event in Sid Barrett's life was when his father, Arthur, died in December of 1961. And friends of his from Cambridge, who actually rose to prominence as the as well as the 60s went on such as storm thorgerson the artist who would uh design pretty much all of pink floyd's album sleeves from saucer full of secrets onwards speculates that this is where sid kind of started to go wrong if you're not familiar with the story of sid barrett sid is unfairly touted as being the guy who used to be in pink floyd who went insane Certainly, this is probably where the seeds of his later mental breakdown were sown. And fellow Cambridgian, I don't even know if that's the right word for it, David Gilmore, who obviously would also go on to play guitar and sing for Pink Floyd, uh, concurs with that. His sister Rosemary, in an interview, noted that Sid's personality practically changed overnight after his father's death, becoming a little bit more introspective and more serious which was kind of like the personality his father and his two other brothers had at the time having lost his father um sid actually formed a rapport with roger waters who was also from cambridge roger waters's father had been killed during world war ii so there was sort of an unspoken bond between the two of them although 
Sid would also hang around quite a lot with David Gilmore and Storm Thorgerson. Uh, Sid started art school in Cambridge after completing high school and completed two years before moving on to London to complete his studies, but not before being exposed to the, shall we say, inspirational qualities of cannabis. Um, Obviously, Cambridge being a university town, there was quite a market for mind-expanding substances, and the proximity to U.S. Air Force bases such as Mildenhall in East Anglia would bring exposure to uh, a ready supply of cannabis from uh, smuggled in by U.S. servicemen. But in uh, 1964, Sid Barrett moved to London to continue art school, where he met up with Roger Waters, who had already moved to London to take up architecture. And Roger Waters had already started a band featuring a guy named Bob Close on guitar and Nick Mason on drums and Richard Wright on keyboards. The band was called Sigma Six, but would change its name quite a number of times before they settled on Pink Floyd. Um, the band would be called the T-Set, the Megadeths, and variations on the Abdabs, such as the Architectural Abdabs, or the Screaming Abdabs, or just late, la- or, or lastly, just the Abdabs. But the band was rechristened Pink Floyd in 1965 by Sid Barrett after a the liner notes of a blues album in which two... American blues artists were named Pink Anderson and Floyd Council, which is where the name Pink Floyd comes from. Sid at that point was playing bass with Bob Close on guitar and Roger Waters also on guitar. In 65, uh, the Pink Floyd cut a demo, a four-song demo, of which two songs have surfaced. One is a cover of Slim Harpo's King B, and the other is a, uh, a, a Sid Barrett original entitled Lucy Leave. And this track, Lucy Leave, kind of started off, it was sort of, um, how do I put it? It was like the first in a long sort of continuum of songs whose lyrics deal with abandonment and loss and people leaving or and people leaving Sid behind. But for now, we are going to start this set off with King Bee. Well, I'm a King Bee Buzzing around your heart Yes, I'm a King Bee child Buzzing around your heart
Flash your Friends of CITR card and get a nifty discount at the KISS Adult Toy Store, the Regional Assembly of Text, and the Bike Kitchen. Show it when you shop and thank them for being a friend of CITR. interviews that Pink Floyd gave was in Canada on CBC. There are precious few recordings of Sid Barrett talking about those early days, and this is one of the few. Sid Barrett, Roger Walters, and Nick Mason on CBC. 
In a frenetic haze of sound and sight, a new concept of music has begun to penetrate the senses of Britain's already hopped-up beat fans. Some call it free sound. Others prefer to include it in the psychedelic wave of isms already circulating around the Western Hemisphere. But this music, here and now, is that of the Pink Floyd, a group of four young musicians, a light man, and an array of equipment sadistically designed to shatter the strongest nerves. The Pink Floyd are new on the London scene. They've stupefied audiences at all-night raves, in church halls, at the Albert Hall, and on various tours in Britain. They've yet to make their debut on records. But perhaps the Pink Floyd themselves are most qualified to tell you what it's all about. We didn't start out trying to get anything new, you know, it just, it, it entirely happened. We originally started virtually as a, an R&B group. Yeah. Sometimes we just sort of let loose a bit and started hitting the guitar a bit harder and not worrying quite so much about the chords. It stopped being sort of third-rate academic rock, you know, it started being sort of intuitive groove, really. It's free form. In sort of terms of constructing, it's almost like jazz, where you start off with a riff, and then you improvise on this, except, except to it's, some extent the improvisation. Where it differs from jazz is that when you're, if you're improvising around a jazz number, if it's a 16-bar number, you stick to 16-bar choruses, and you take 16-bar solos. Whereas with us, it starts, and we may play three choruses of something that lasts for 17 and a half bars each chorus. And then stop happening and yeah. it'll stop happening when it stops happening and it may be 423 bars later or four and it's not like jazz music because some um, we, we all want to be pop stars we don't want to be jazz yeah, musicians yeah exactly and i mean we play for people to dance to they don't seem to dance much now <laughs> well, that's the initial idea so we play loudly and we're playing with electric guitars so uh, i mean we're, we're utilizing all the volume and all the effects you can get but now, in fact, we're trying to develop this by using the light. Yes, of course. The but the thing about the jazz thing is that we don't have this great musician thing, you know. We don't, uh, we don't really look upon ourselves as musicians as such, you know, period. Reading the dots and all that stuff. How important is the visual aspect of the production? Very, very, very important. important. It's quite a revelation to have people operating something like lights while you're playing as a direct stimulus to what you're playing it's rather like audience reaction except it's some sort of on a higher level you know you can respond to it and then the lights will respond back there are various sorts of lights there's simply flashing spotlights that are worked off as
was Candy in a Current Bun by Pink Floyd, um, both sides of their first single released early in 1967. Um, Arnold Lane being the first single, and it was a uh, top 20 hit in uh, Britain, despite not having been played on the BBC at the time, and also having been banned by uh, the pirate radio station Radio London due to its lyrical content of a transvestite who steals clothing off washing lines at night, which apparently was actually a true story. Roger Waters, having grown up in Cambridge with Sid Barrett, um, his mother being a single mother, would take in lodgers, um, students from um, the various colleges around Cambridge University, and there was in fact a uh, fetishist who at the time was stealing laundry women's underwear off the laundry lines the song candy in a current bun actually started off life being entitled let's roll another one and was a pan to sid's um shall we say patronage of uh, cannabis uh it was it had was forced to be re recorded by the band by EMI after they signed to EMI although Snid, although Sid managed to sneak the word fuck into the song and as such I believe it is the first song first recorded and commercially released song to feature the uh, F word in it the first two tracks in that set were King B cover of Slim Harpo's song and a Sid Barrett original Lucy Leave which were demoed by the band in 1965 In 1965, the band lost Bob Close on guitar, but gained, I wouldn't really say a benefactor, but an interesting, how do you put it, mentor in Mike Leonard, who was an older guy who was interested in electronics and in particular lights and lighting effects. He allowed the Pink Floyd to rehearse in his studio where Sid was essentially allowed to allowed free reign to write whatever songs he liked. At the time, the band was mostly reliant on R&B and blues covers. They Up until 1967 even, they would continue doing Bo Diddley covers live. But Sid's, Sid, with his the demise of his father, had lost a sort of a... a, a an authority figure in his life, as you'd like, if you'd like. Um, he didn't have anybody to tell him no. His mother was somewhat indulgent towards him, and he didn't have a uh, sort of a primary male authority figure to tell him what he was was and was not allowed to do, which in one way enabled him to write the songs that he did and enabled him to lead the band into these flights of fancy where they were more interested in the noise that the instruments they had made than actually writing proper songs. Rick Wright would note that Sid was writing lots of songs which were very much outside the normal spectrum of uh, pop lyricism at the time. In a time when pop songs were basically about falling in love or relations between a man, a, a boy and a girl, Sid was writing all these songs about almost fairy tale or childish subjects, but they still were recognizable as rock and roll songs. The 
Let me flip the page here. Early in 1966, or later on in 1966, the band would start gigging fairly heavily. Uh, in January of 66, they hooked up with the spontaneous underground happenings at the Marquee Club in Soho in London, which would happen on Sunday afternoons. And they were essentially freeform mixed media happenings in the style of the time. At that point, they would start working in some of their more freeform songs, such as Power Talk, Power Talk H, Interstellar Overdrive, and Astronomy Demine into their set. But we're still playing Bo, Did Bo Diddley songs, and we're starting to play the sort of precis of later, more standard songs that would appear on Piper at the Gates of Dawn, such as Matilda Mother. They were, absorbing they were absorbing influences such as the Birds and the Fugs, the Mothers of Invention, Paul Butterfield Blues Band, and the Who. Sid was also very enraptured of Bob Dylan at the point, as, at that point as well. Later on, the spontaneous underground would move to All Saints Hall in London, and that's where the Sid or the Pink Floyd's career really took off. Hundreds of people would show up. It was standing room only. People were being refused entry at the door due to overcrowding. And this whole would, cul would culminate in October 1966 with the launch of the International Times underground, or underground newspaper at the Roundhouse in London. At this point, the, the Pink Floyd had acquired management in the form of Andrew King and Peter Jenner. P uh, King and Jenner introduced them to a, an American who was living in London who was making his way as a producer named Norm Boyd. And Boyd would end up producing the single which you heard, or a demo of the single which you heard Arnold Lane backed with Candy in a Current Bun, which he shopped to EMI and successfully got the band signed to EMI early in 1967. Recording of the Pink Floyd's debut album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, would start in February of 1967. And it's kind of an indication of the times that at Abbey Road Studios where they were recording there was Pink Floyd recording The Piper at the Gates of Dawn the Beatles were recording Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and the Pretty Things were recording SF Sorrow the band gigged fairly regularly around London but it has to be added at this point that Sid's LSD intake had increased dramatically. He was living with essentially, um, I wouldn't say a hippie commune, but the, his home environment in London revolved around a bunch of scenesters who were very into smuggling LSD into Britain and then distributing it amongst the underground. It was remarked by his girlfriend at the time, Jenny, Jenny Boyd. Jenny Boyd or Lindsay Corner, I can't remember which one, that his, he was on acid almost every day, which at the time didn't really seem to be out of the ordinary, seeing as everybody in London practically was on the stuff, but this would have ramifications later on in the summer. In April of 1967, the Pink Floyd played probably their watershed gig of the Sid Barrett era, at the 14-hour Technicolor Dream in at the Alexandra Palace in North London. This, unfortunately, was also the beginning of the end 
And it was an indication of the gig scheduling that the Pink Floyd were living under at the time because earlier in the day or earlier in the evening they played a gig in Rotterdam in the Netherlands and then hastily had to get back onto the ferry and then take the drive back to London to be on stage at 8 o'clock in the morning at the Alexander Palace. What am I going on with this? <laughs> Sorry, this is like my, uh, if you're listening, this is probably sounding really stale because it's like my first attempt to actually read off a script here, which I've written out, but uh, I seem to be missing a lot of things. One thing I've actually forgotten to do here is I've got to play some PSAs for you. Um, like this one. AIDS Wolf embraces the hate. If they can't draw you in, they will make you run away cursing and bitching. Their songs speak to the terminally alienated, the relentlessly negative, the inherently repugnant. This Montreal four-piece, two guitars, drums, and insane warbling formed in early 2003 to the protestations of most of humanity. Since the beginning, they've sought to live the life, to practice complete aesthetic immersion, create music in some form every day, and live healthfully to facilitate their creative endeavors, no vacations allowed. Take a trip with AIDS Wolf on Saturday, April 4th at the Biltmore Cabaret with guests Shearing Pinks and Twin Crystals. Get your tickets now for this early show at Zulu, Scratch, and Red Cat. Uh, when you experiment with cut-ups over a period of time, you find that some of the cut-ups seem to refer to future events. Well, we went on to exploit the potentials of the tape recorder. Now, back to modern times. Tapes, tapes, Cut up, slow down, speed up, run backwards, inch the tape. That means uh, working back and forth across the tape head. Hey, girl. Move a little closer. Play several tracks at once. Uh, cut back and forth between two recorders. Copyright infringement. Infringement. Copyright. Piracy. Oh, no, I pressed the wrong button again. Sample. So cut-ups put you in touch with what you know and, and do not know that you know. Exquisite Corpse, Thursday, 7.30 to 9 p.m. on the mighty CITR Radio, 101.9, Vancouver. This is not all rock and roll, dude. Anyway, we are back here on Stereoscopic Readout on 101.9 FM CITR here in Vancouver, and we're doing our feature on Sid Barrett, the life and music thereof. <clears throat> anyway, hopefully I can't, hopefully I can get through this without boring you to tears because I'm really realizing that my speaking voice here is getting kind of monotone. But as we had heard before the break, Pink Floyd had had their first taste of success with the Arnold Lane single, which hit number 20 on the British charts in early 1967. This led to an increase in the number of gigs that they would play, and if you're familiar with Britain, you can pretty much drive from London to Glasgow in about 10 hours, which meant that the Pink Floyd would play in London one night, play in Birmingham the next night, play in Exeter the following night, and then have to drive probably up to Newcastle the, f the next the following night after that. They were playing four or five gigs a week, which if you're driving the length and breadth of a country that size, 
is quite disorienting and it's also quite stressful because the Pink Floyd, on the one hand, like they said in the CBC interview, claimed that they wanted to be pop stars, but I think they wanted to be pop stars doing the experimental music such as Interstellar Overdrive that they were becoming known for in the London Underground, especially now that they had had started a residency at the UFO Club on Tottenham Court Road. It's a famous story of the Pink Floyd going out to play more provincial places where in, in London, the audience would love the extended freeform concepts of interstellar overdrive, whereas when they tried to play that in even in places not that far away, such as say Birmingham or closer to home, such as in Sussex, audience reaction was quite hostile. Um, If the pub was a place that had a mezzanine, they would have beer poured on them. And there was one gig where somebody in the audience threw a coin and it hit Roger Waters square in the forehead, cutting it open. Nick Mason has gone on record as saying that mainly those days they were fueled by fear and rum to get through their gigs. All through this, though, Sid Barrett was also acquiring a an unhealthy, almost near addiction to LSD. And when it came time to record their next single, which became See Emily Play, in the spring of 1967, he invited his friend from Cambridge, David Gilmore, who was playing in a band called Joker's Wild and gigging pretty heavily in France at the time, to come pop by Abbey Road and visit. However, David Gilmore was quite disturbed when he showed up to find out that Sid somehow was not the same person he used to be. In fact, even though Sid had invited him to the sessions, Sid didn't even recognize David Gilmore. And this is it. This is the Pink Floyd's big, or excuse me, this is the Pink Floyd's big hit from the summer of 1967. Emily play was a top 10 hit and it would in fact be their biggest hit until another brick in the wall hit number one in Britain in the early 80s. <laughs>
on a gown that touches the ground.
Well, if I first may turn to Roger, I want to ask one fundamental question of which our televiewers may not be quite aware the significance of it because they didn't hear all of it. Why has it all got to be so terribly loud? For me, frankly, it's too loud. I just can't bear it. I happen to have grown up in the string quartet, which is a bit softer. So uh, why has it got to be so loud, so amplified? Well, I don't guess it has to be, but I mean, that's the way we like it. And uh, we didn't grow up with a string quartet, and I guess that could be one of the reasons why it is loud. And it doesn't sound terribly loud to us. It's actually not everybody who hasn't grown up in a string quartet turns into a loud pop group, so your reason is not altogether convincing, but I accept that you like it. What I'm saying is that if one gets immune to this kind of sound, one may find it difficult to appreciate softer types of sound. Sid, yes? No? I don't think that's so. No. Uh, I mean, everybody listens. We don't need it very loud to be able to hear it, and with some of it is very quiet. Right. I, I personally, I like quiet music just as much as loud music. We play in large halls and things where, where obviously volume is necessary. And when people dance, they like uh, volume, you know, comes in uh, on its turn. But uh, well, that's in the group which accompany dancing. Is that it? Yeah, you could say that. And how did you turn into a concertizing group, if I may use the American term? Well, we've only done two concerts in fact, yes. because the. The main scene with uh, pop music, which I guess is what we are at yes. the moment, is that uh, you play gigs around ballrooms and dance halls and this sort of scene, because that's how it works at the moment. But uh, we felt that there was no real reason, you know, why we shouldn't do a, an organized concert in a large hall where people came and sat and actually listened to what we do, because uh, dance halls, generally speaking, are, are not very good places to actually listen to the music. Most people come along and the music, for most of them, has been, over the past few years anyway, just a sort of background noise that they can jig about to in certain sort of, you know. Were those two concerts successful? Yes, yes I think so. But the, us, I mean, when we play, I think uh, uh, the way the acts developed in the last six months has been influenced rather a lot by the fact that we've played in ballrooms, yes. necessarily, because you know that this is obviously the first market. But I think concerts have given us a chance to realise that maybe the music we play isn't directed at dancing necessarily like normal pop groups um, have been in the past. Have you encountered any hostility um, towards your creation? Well, yes, we have, but I mean, I guess there's been quite a lot of hostility going on in odd places in the country. I mean, the only hostility we've actually seen, of course, is that which has hit the national press and things. The sort of uh, professional knockers like Robert Pittman and people have had a go at us. Do you, in your turn, feel aggressive toward your audiences? No, not at all. In spite of all the loud loudness, you don't? No, not at all. Yes, there are, uh, there's, not sorry? Many, there's not many young people who sort of cause, you know, who dislike it. No, there's no shock treatment intended. No, certainly not. You know, some people think that we deliberately try and um, sort of uh, shock. shock the audience and make them, you know by the volume and keep them quiet sort of thing, yes. but this isn't so. Well, there it is. I think you can pass your verdict as well as I can. My verdict is that it is a little bit of a regression to childhood, but after all, why not?
FM CITR in Vancouver, and this is Stereoscopic Readout's look at the life and music of Sid Barrett. And those were some selections from the summer of 1967, the CMLE Play single, which was a top 10 hit for the band. And then Astronomy Demine, 
Lucifer, Sam, and Bike from their debut album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which would be released in August of 1967. By that point, Sid had actually garnered a name for himself. Um, He was pretty much the only guitar player in Britain doing what he was doing. And when you consider his competition, people like Pete Townsend and his use of feedback and harmonics... um, or sorry, Jeff Beck and his use of harmonics and the guy from the guy from the creation whose name eludes me playing his guitar with a violin bow. Of all of them, I think Sid Barrett was the only one who may have claimed to have directly influenced Jimi Hendrix. If you listen to some of his Sid Barrett's use of slide and echo, especially on Astronomy to Mind and Interstellar Overdrive, and compare it with Hendrix's use of the same combo on tracks such as may this be love from his first album are you experienced i think it's quite obvious that something there must have been some given give and take going on at the time however for all his success on the charts and his acclaim with the underground sid was a spent force by the summer of 1967 and this manifested itself on the weekend of the 28th of july 1967 when the Pink Floyd had to cancel a BBC Playhouse appearance because Sid had disappeared. When he reappeared on the 28th of July, he was a changed person forever. David Gilmore had noticed there's something had changed in his eyes when he'd visited the Pink Floyd while they were recording the CM Lee play single at Abbey Road. He said that whereas once there was a light, now his eyes looked completely dead. And his sister Rosemary concurred with that. But when Sid reappeared on the 28th of July, even people like Rick Rick Wright notes that he was completely changed. He was a completely changed individual, and he was not the same person he was beforehand. You can sort of hear it in his interviews, which I've played. The first one from the first set, which was a CBC interview, and I'm actually pretty happy about that, that the CBC was way ahead of the curve interviewing um the Pink Floyd in January of 1967 before they even had a single or a record deal. And the second one was Miss, uh, Dr. Hans Keller on a BBC show called Look of the Week, his, the infamous Why Has It All Got to Be So Terribly Loud interview, which was conducted in May of 1967. Um, that one you can actually find on YouTube if you're interested. And you can see Sid is bright, he's attentive, he's quite normal. Compare that to later television appearances such as Pink Floyd on American Bandstand being interviewed by Dick Clark. Yes, you heard that right, Dick Clark. Or the promo film for the track Jug Band Blues and Sid looks essentially dead on his feet. He looks either terrified or like oddly enough the same look you get in footage from World War II of soldiers returning from the front He's got the thousand-yard stare. The following night after Sid's reappearance, another traumatic incident manifested itself at the International Love Inn at the Alexandra Palace, which was meant to be sort of a sequel to the 14-hour Technicolor Dream. But when the Pink Floyd were ready to go on, Sid was found backstage in a catatonic stupor. Um, unable to communicate to anybody and certainly not able to stand up or go out on stage. The band's 
sort of secretary, as it were, June Bolin, who would end up marrying Mark Bolin. And Roger Waters had to physically drag him on stage and put his guitar on where he essentially stood and stared at the audience and didn't play a note. And this incident would be used during the film version of Pink Floyd's The Wall. If you're familiar with that film, there's a scene in there based on that where uh, the character Pink is being dragged on stage while he tears at his own skin. Things were also not going well on the commercial front. EMI wanted a third single from the band to follow CMLE play up, and Sid acquiesced by writing a track called Scream Thy Last Scream, which you're going to hear in a minute, um, which was promptly rejected by EMI as being too uncommercial. The follow-up single attempt was Jug Band Blues, which was also rejected by EMI and would be um, would pop up on Pink Floyd's second album, Saucer Full of Secrets, which we'll be hearing probably not today because it looks like I'm going to be running out of time. But essentially, Sid was starting to alienate himself from the band. Attempts at writing music continued. Um, two tracks, one of which I have for you called In the Beach Woods, was never never progressed beyond the um, bass or the bed track stage. And another track which was mooted as a single called She Was a Millionaire but was never recorded. But Sid um, had practically done all his writing for the band. He'd co-written most of the material on the first album. But for the second album, he would only manage to write one song. His other songs, such as what was eventually accepted as the Pink Floyd's third single, Apples and Oranges, were, was pretty much the last of his creative output in the Pink Floyd. The Void having to be taken over by Rick Wright and Roger Waters. At the same time, Sid, Sid's home environment had also got to get, it also started deteriorating. Um, he got very violent. He developed a violent streak, actually, which is not well known, but uh, this manifested itself quite frequently with fights with his girlfriend, Lindsay Corner. In one instance, he actually locked Lindsay in his bedroom for three days. At the same time, he also started his behavior became very erratic on stage he would stand on stage and not play his guitar and simply stare at the audience or other times when he did play his guitar he would simply detune it while the other band while the rest of the band was playing and then just sort of pluck the um loose strings with the echo unit on and in the middle of all this madness they were sent out to attempt a u.s tour Starting on the 29th of October, 1967, they played a few gigs at the Fillmore in San Francisco and made some appearances in the Los Angeles area, as well as being on TV, the Pat Boone Show, and American Bandstand. But it became quite obvious that Sid was not able to function. Uh, Roger Waters, in an interview, has said that the rehearsals for the Pat Boone Show, Sid was quite happy to sort of mime along because they were expected to mime along with the Apples and Oranges single. But when it came time to actually do a take on film, Sid would just all of a sudden stop and just stare at the camera not doing any not do anything and this is kind of a dichotomy which one finds if you read about the band is that was Sid insane or was he was like Sid actually completely insane and on a lot of drugs at the same time or Sid marginally mentally disturbed but much of this erratic behavior that he was engaging in was it actually more sort of a passive aggressive sort of uh 
way to assert some sort of dominance over the rest of the band. It's not known, but certainly there are incidents from the summer of sixty or from the rest of '67 and into uh, through the rest of his life, which seem to indicate that he might have actually known that the other people thought he was he had gone nuts and decided to play along with that for whatever reason. But in November of 1967, the last single from the Pink Floyd or the Sid Barrett fronted Pink Floyd was released. Apples and oranges. Got a flip top pack of cigarettes in the pocket, feeling good at the top, shopping at shops, walking in the sunshine town, feeling very cool. But the butchers and the bakers and the supermarket stores getting everything she wants from the supermarket store.
What are you working on at the moment to inside yourself? say because it's obviously taking too much time to think about I don't I some it's not really difficult feel when you see people, but do you often feel when you see people that you could tell them something about themselves that they don't already know in films? But do you look at people that way? I feel you do, that you really sort of absorb people. Do you?
No, I think there's something about... Um... Wow, it really gets pretty involved at this stage. I can't see it. Yeah, there is a... I certainly do get a, a feeling of what people like, and it, it really, the really, the, the complication comes out in talking, but this only comes out at certain times because of a feeling that the talking is, in fact, a much, a far less uh, valuable thing than, uh, and it's almost <coughs> superfluous. To, Hi, this is Mick from Bell Sebastian. You're listening to DITR 101.9 FM.
Heading into the last 10 minutes of the show here on CITR 101.9 FM here. This is the, pretty much the end of what is now going to be termed part one of the look at the life and music of Sid Barrett and his time in and out of the Pink Floyd. And that was the infamous Scream Thy Last Scream, the studio version. Um, another version of it would be performed live on the BBC in December of 1967, and it would also be captured on a live recording of Pink Floyd playing in Copenhagen <clears throat> towards the end of 1967 as well. Um, where was I? Let's take a look at that. Preceded that with Vegetable Man, which had been mooted as the B-side to Jug Band Blues as, a, um, as the second attempt to come up with the Pink Floyd's third single, in 1967 that also was rejected and never released scream last scream obviously was never released began the set with apples and oranges what was eventually used as the a-side to the pink floyd's third single released in in november of 1967 i promised you i was going to try and fit in the beach woods or the backing track to in the beach woods in there but it turns out i've burned the wrong version of it um so you're gonna have to wait until next week next week at 6 p.m uh bleak is waiting in the wings to start exquisite corpse which as usual starts at 7 30 um and then ben is in at nine with live from thunderbird radio hell so where was i Probably an indication, it's a good indication of the mental condition that Sid Barrett was in that three of the last four songs I've played end or feature very prominent laughter in the mix. Bike ends with some um, sped up laughter at the end when all the uh, clocks and so forth have finished chiming. Vegetable Man ends in laughter and then Scream Thy Last Scream is almost Bosch-like in its nightmarish depiction of something. God knows what it is. But there's laughter and crowd noises. Um, this was sort of a feature or a sort of an underlying theme of some of Sid's writing during, during 67 bookends, kind of conveniently with um, his issues about abandonment and being left as well. So needless to say, the U.S. tour was cut short. There was a second round of San Francisco shows which were meant to happen at Winterland in the first week of November. Well, those were cancelled, as well as a further TV appearance. Although apparently the Pink Floyd did stop in New York City and play a show on their way back. Um, in mid-November, as if nobody could tell that Sid really needed to not be in the band for a bit, uh, the Pink Floyd embarked on a package tour of the British Isles with Jimi Hendrix, The Move, Amen Corner, The Nice, Air Apparent, and The Outer Limits. That lasted until the beginning of December, at which point the band really realized that they needed to do something. They wanted to keep Sid in the band. They wanted to keep him uh, possibly even as sort of a Brian Wilson arrangement that the Beach Boys had where he would write the songs and organize things in the studio, but they would bring in a guitar player to take his place on stage and and at least be there when Sid was not mentally there, even if he was physically there. His replacement turned out to be his old friend David Gilmore from Cambridge. There were a few gigs at the end of 1967 and into the beginning of 1968 with David Gilmore uh, in the band and the band performing as a five-man unit. But eventually it was this, it was 
decided that even Sid wasn't particularly welcome on stage anymore. And before a gig in Southampton on the 26th of January, 1968, the rest of the band packed up and were driving out of town and decided not to pick Sid up on the way to Southampton. Effectively, he was fired from his own band, although they would attempt to try to have him write music and and sort of rehearse with the band for uh, studio recordings. However, David Gilmore and Roger Waters have both spoken of the only time this happened where Sid tried to teach the rest of the band a song, and it was called Have You Got It Yet?, and the whole rehearsal lasted a couple of hours, and what it was was Sid Barrett playing a riff. And when the rest of the band seemed like they were about to understand or about to catch on to what he was playing, he would change the riff, and they'd have to start back at the beginning. Eventually, Roger Waters realized that Sid was making this song up as he went along to frustrate the rest of the band. And at key points during the song, he would sing, "Have you got it yet? Have you got it yet?" So, effectively, what we're going to deal with next time is Sid Barrett's solo material for the Madcap Laughs and for the Barrett albums. But what I'm going to leave you with is Jug Band Blues, his, in retrospect, sort of his crushing kind of farewell and you know, two fingers to the rest of the band once he'd realized that the band was no longer his. Last track on Saucer Full of Secrets, their second album released in 1968. And that is essentially it from me this week. Um, back next week at 6 p.m. And if you're in Nelson on Saturday night, I am going to be at Finley's playing a gig at in Nelson um, on Saturday night. Anyway, somebody's calling. I uh, can't answer because I'm talking. But anyway, that's it for me this week. This is Jug Band Blues. It's awfully considerate of you to think of me here And I'm most obliged to you for making it clear that I'm not here And I never knew the moon could be so big And I never knew the moon could be so big Grateful that you threw away my old shoes and brought me here instead dressed in red. And I'm wondering who could be writing this song. I don't care if the sun doesn't shine, and I don't care if nothing is mine, and I don't care if I'm nervous with you.